Welcome to Authors on the Air. I'm Terry Shepard. Carmela Chiraru is the editor of the anthology First Loves. Poets introduced the essential poems that captivated and inspired them. And the former editor of the Journal of the Poetry Society of America. A graduate of Columbia University School of Journalism, she has a new book that the Washington Post calls a tour de force. The Lives of Wives, Five Literary Marriages, says the Wall Street Journal, is a compulsively readable book about the vicissitudes of relationships over time. You know, it's five stories of these writers' marriages, and um, I'm not trying to tell the stories of all writers' marriages or all marriages. It's really just looking at these five specific ones, um, mostly spanning, you know, early to mid-20th century. And um, these are largely difficult and unhappy marriages, but what I hope readers will take away is that there's also love and adventure and excitement in these stories. And I, I don't know if I'm just spinning it, but I would like to think that they're kind of inspiring because, you know, at least some of these women were able to discover themselves in midlife and kind of reinvent themselves. And they weren't completely happy. You know, they didn't, they, I think all of them ended up alone, but they, they found themselves. And so I thought that was kind of beautiful and touching and, um, and, and that's really what, what these stories are. And I hope that readers would seek out their work as well for the writers, not, you know, Patricia Neal was an actor, but um, yeah, that's sort of broadly it. And why these five couples? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it was, uh, there's some randomness to it. It's because I needed to find uh, stories that where I could find enough about the women. And in some cases, you know, I had a long list initially. I still have that piece of paper with all my scribbled names and I couldn't find enough about the wife, which says a lot, kind of reinforces the reason for my book. And, um, and in some cases, to be honest, I thought, oh, well, either one or both of these people don't seem that interesting to me. So it's not like I was looking for you know, dysfunction and, you know, bad people. It wasn't that at all. But I, I was really fascinated by, as you know, the crazy personalities in this book. I just thought, gosh, these are great stories and they're great characters. And um, so I kind of landed on them in, in that way. Well, and conflict seems to be a central theme. Why do you think so many of these unions couldn't come to terms with it? I think it's because, that's a great question. I think it's because, um, had any of these women been content to, you know, to kind of serve the other, to serve their partner and be this adoring spouse, which I guess you could argue Una Truebridge largely was, but she was certainly accomplished herself. There would have been less conflict, but, you know, you had the egos and the maniacal dedication to work of the these writers. And it was just causing conflict because it was constantly, you know, for years and years having to put one person's needs above your own. And at a certain point, you know, that becomes unsustainable. You know, Una Trubridge, um, I would say, saw that as her vocation. But as you know, I write about how difficult her partner was and the kind of nastiness and tempers and, you know, temper flares and things like that. So it was not easy. Um, but I, I think it was just yeah, having to subjugate one's own needs and desires for for another person and then being abused for it, really. Well, and Una and Radcliffe 
stood out to me as being perhaps the most accessible to today's readers. Tell tell us more about them. <laughs> yeah, they were they were two women, and um, what I find interesting about them is that they are the most politically conservative and traditional in the book. They were very stuffy. They were snobs and ironically did did not particularly like women. They were not on board for women's rights really. And they were horrible anti-Semites. Like, you know, so they're really um, quite something, both of these women as, as characters. And um, Una had been married to a Naval captain. Um, these are two British women. Um, and uh, and was miserable and hated being a wife and hated motherhood and you know just felt really lost and unhappy and then when she met Radcliffe Hall just instantly fell in love and thought gosh I have to serve this great genius um, but I, I think it's a it's a funny story because they got into so many wacky things as you know they were award-winning dog breeders. And then they got into the, the seeing a psychic and there was a love triangle. And then there was another love triangle later on. I mean, it's just a wild story, but as with all the couples, I have affection for them. You know, they were, they were struggling to, um, you know, give Radcliffe Hall her due as, as Una saw it. And it was not always easy. As you know, the book that she wrote, the main book she was known for, The Well of Loneliness, was banned. And they, they had a lot of turmoil and trauma. And it was, you know, it's I just think it's a really fascinating story. Carmela Chararu is our guest. The book is The Lives of Wives, Five Literary Marriages, available everywhere. I imagine that most of the questions you get from people who are outside of the literary community are about Ronald Dahl and Patricia Neal yeah. and the Svengali yeah. he was to really bring her back from her stroke. So in yeah. some ways he was her savior, but he was not a very nice guy while he was doing it. He was not, he was killing her as he was saving her life. Truly. I mean, you know, there were moments as I talk about in the chapter when she 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 felt suicidal and she couldn't take his cruelty anymore. And at the same time, I would argue that he did save her life after she had a series of strokes. He um, b basically bullied her into walking and talking again, and and it worked. But you know, at what price? Um, it was he kind of put her through hell. But 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 she even admitted herself because of him, she was still alive and able to function at a high level. I mean, it's it was an extraordinary story. Are there commonalities that emerged for you as you studied these lives of wives? Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. It wasn't until after, you know, completing all the chapters that I saw, oh, the, you know, the men remarried, except for Kingsley Amos, although he sort of right. fell in with his first wife again, moving in with them. Not really, not really what they wanted, you know, with her, her and her, her second husband, he sort of you know, became a trio with them, but the others all remarried. And so I was like, oh, that's one pattern that none of the women, all the women ended up alone. Um, and then I think, um, you know, I, I felt that what the marriages had done as much as the women had, had suffered, they had also weirdly boosted the confidence and resilience of these women so that they were able to thrive after the marriage. And it, I've always wondered, about each of them. And Una is different because she just sort of served the legacy of Radcliffe Hall. Um, but with the others, I thought, gosh, would they have written what they what they did um, had they not been married to these horrible 
men because something in them was just so full of rage and ambition and it really pushed them to the edge in ways good and bad. So I thought, yeah, that's just something that I've, that I've wondered about. What does it take to live with a writer? Gosh, well, it's, you know, as, as you know, writing is kind of an endurance sport and that means you just got to sit in a chair and write or type whatever, however it is you do it. And it takes a long time. And it's for me, um, incredibly difficult and draining physically and mentally. And so I think it's, it's hard to live at a, with a writer if you want to write at a certain level. Um, and I think for the, for the people in this book, except for Elsa Morante, who did not have children, the others did. And so then you think, gosh, what about the children? What are they going through? And in some cases, you've got two narcissistic parents, neither of whom is really available for the child or the children, emotionally or physically. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to say that it is always difficult. I think that would be a bit silly, but certainly in the, for the couples in this book, it, it was incredibly hard and kind of depressing, <laughs> you know, it was, it, it was not easy, but, but that said, there were, uh, you know, so many moments of joy and excitement and adventure. And I think there was something really exciting for these women about serving a quote unquote genius and being the one who's the gatekeeper and who gets to go to all these really exciting, you know, film openings and theater openings and be at the center of these, um, high-powered social circles. I think there was something really fun about that, at least for a while. If this were a self-help book, self-help book, what would be the key bullet points that you would be telling people in a TED talk about how to make it work? Oh my, I don't, I don't think I should go anywhere near that. That's a <laughs> fantastic question. I feel like it's far beyond my knowledge. I mean, I don't know, you know, it's well, the other thing that I think is problematic about these particular couples, except for two of them. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of alcoholism. So, you know, when you bring drinking into the mix and narcissism and ambition and cruelty, it's just a, it's a toxic brew. So I, I don't, I wouldn't even know where to start with these people. And in terms of I don't know any kind of self-help words. I, I guess I would say that it's okay for one person to have the big dreams and the, and the big talent and the big ambition. But I would like to think that over the long course of a marriage that then when the other person would say, well, Hey, I want to pursue this. I want to be a painter or a writer or an actor or this, that the other person would then say, okay, now it's your turn. And I, I, you know, I have a friend for whom that's the case. She gave up her country and her career for her husband. And at a certain point, she wanted to go back and do something different. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm in. And I thought that was so amazing and wonderful, but that's rare. So I think some level of give and take is essential. And that's not the case largely in this book. Sometimes it is, but mostly not. And, um, and I, I just think, um, valuing both people because in each of these cases, one was really the one who was valued and the other was not. The other was nothing and small and invisible. And that's just a horrible feeling. So those are the things that just come to mind immediately. But that's such a great big question that I think, oh gosh, I don't know how to, <laughs> I don't know how to address that. But I, I love the question. <laughs> you did it very well. We're talking with Carmela Chiraru about her book, The Lives of Wives. 
five literary marriages available everywhere. You know, in your wonderful book, uh, Nam de Plume, A Secret History of Pseudonyms, you tell us that pen names can provide a freedom from the shackles of assumption. This is my words after reading the book, associated with the perception mm -hmm. of identity. Do you think there's a commonality in how your five literary marriages addressed identity ultimately? Maybe I would answer that in what ties these stories to Nam de Plume, which is that I think not all, but some of the couples in this book wore a mask to the outside world. There was the facade of perfection and serenity and um, kind of glamour. And then there was the ugliness and the horrors behind closed doors. So I think in the way that in, in Nom de Plume, the writers used the, the cloak of, of the name as a way of masking their real identity. The, the couples in this book used it in different ways. You know, they compartmentalized the reality versus what they showed to their friends and to um, others outside of the marriage. Um, maybe this ties to one of your earlier questions. I think one of the problematic aspects of these marriages was that uh, identity was so rooted in work and ambition and what one was producing as a novelist that it, it overtook the identity of say husband or father or you know the the familial identity it just took over everything and so maybe you know uh the key is finding a balance between one's identity within a family unit and then that just kind of overpower overpowering all-consuming obsessive drive to to write and to create but for these guys as you know it was like i'm the writer and this is this is who I am and it's everything and deal with it, you know? How did you decide to write this story? Well, it's um, it's it's tricky to answer because uh, I, I've said before that I, I think ideas, and you probably know this too, ideas don't really come from one place, do they? And sometimes you don't quite know where they come from or why you're, you want to write about them. Uh, I guess when I worked on Numb de Plume, I noticed that the wives were kind of enablers to these writers and helping them hide their secret or deliver manuscripts or type manuscripts or serve out coffee or cigarettes or whatever it was. So that that kind of stayed with me. And when I finished that book, it, I, I sort of absorbed that the wives were doing so much to take care of these writers. And then um, I also saw a quote from one of my favorite writers, Lori Moore, and she said, you know, basically every writer needs a wife, which she talked about Vera Nabokov, but um, that really stayed with me. And then, yeah, at a certain point, I just started digging around and doing research. And then I had a lot of research and I kept going. And then I, I thought, gosh, maybe this is a book. And, and of course, I'd read the Phyllis Rose book, Parallel Lives, but I thought that was more scholarly than what I wanted to, to do. But, um, but yeah, all those things kind of fed my idea. And then at some point, which I now don't remember when it was, um, the title just came to me, Lives of the Wives. And I thought, what a great title that is. <laughs> you know, so I thought, I, now I have to make it into a book because that's such a great title. My editor suggested the subtitle, but um, just to kind of explain it a little bit. But um, yeah, it, I, I, and then when I realized what I was going to do, I was just so into it. And it was so much fun, even though it was painful at times to read the, the material and I would have to step back for a little bit. I, I just loved working on it. Writers that I know and love talk about being in the zone. How would you describe it when you are in the creative zone? 
Well, um, I would love to hear what, what you would say to that too. For, for me, when it happens, um, I really do lose track. Like I could look at the clock and, and see midnight and look up again and see 3am and have no, no awareness of time passing none and just be shocked. And it's weird. It's a weird feeling that flow state. Um, but do, have you found that as well when you're, when you're working? I feel, I mean, whatever it is, that power is, I feel the universe take over and those rare moments when the words are not coming from me, but are coming through me. Yeah. It's the best feeling. So, um, yeah, but I also try to be flexible and we you know if I don't have a lot of time to write, I would just try to do what I could, but there were many nights where I was just working all night and, um, just cause I was, I had so much research I had to hold in my head at one time. So that's what also made it hard to stop is I needed to keep everything together. And I would get really frustrated if I had to stop. Cause then I would have to go back and reread things. You know, it's just, it was a lot to keep together. How would you say that uh, lives of wives has changed you? Uh, I think that, well, just the writing of it and the research was so hard that it, it gave me strength, you know, just going through the experience of doing this and finishing it. It, it, it yeah, it made me feel stronger. And, um, I was so completely, completely consumed by this book and that's a satisfying feeling. Um, and I would say that it made me, uh, I, I do think of myself as an empathetic person, but now even more than I had ever imagined, I have so much understanding for the vast complexity of anyone. And I don't judge people quite the way I did before I started the book, because someone can be horrible, but they can also be charming and generous. And, you know, we're so many things in so many contexts. I mean, not all of us, but some of us are. And so I, I think that's was kind of a gift to the book is I can now look at someone and say, gosh, that person is really damaged, you know, and, and that's where cruelty comes from. And you see it in the book, you know, even though some of these people, the men and the women, they were not necessarily the kindest or the, you know, the most functional, but they had all been through so much trauma and tragedy and loss. So I feel, um, I feel deep compassion for all of them. And uh, that's helped me in my own life, I would say. What a pleasure to talk with Carmela Tiraru about The Lives of Wives, Five Literary Marriages, available wherever books are sold. Carmela, thanks for joining us on Authors on the Air. Oh, gosh, your questions were so smart and fascinating. I, <laughs> what a really delightful conversation. I, I'm so grateful to you, Terry. The pleasure was mine. Authors on the Air is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.